You know, the one question that dominates my thinking today, the one question that is the focus of the rest of my professional ministry, the one question that uh, I want us to be able to answer on your behalf is a question that you might ask me on any given Sunday morning. And that is, how can I grow into becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ here at Christ Church? How can I become a fully devoted follower of Christ here at Christ Church? When someone asks me that question, I want to be able to have a confident answer to give back to you. And any church that is on a disciple-making journey, we say that's what we were about here. That's an important question to be pondering and to have a good answer to. In fact, I feel like we haven't really had quite as clear an answer to that question as I would like. And it's bothered me that we haven't. And so I want to invite you to answer that question to me. How can I become a fully devoted follower of Christ here at Christ Church? And if you ask that question to me, I'm going to be thrilled because I want to know that that's important to you. But one of the reasons why I'm excited about the time in which we find ourselves here at Christ Church is that I think there is an answer emerging to that question. We might even say that we're on to an answer to what it means to grow towards maturity in Christ and Christ-likeness. We call this our pathway of discipleship that leads us to a most important destination. Uh, that destination you see on the screen this morning, that we are called toward Christ-likeness. That's our destination. Pastor Meyer began this Lenten series last week with this statement. The greatest goal in life is to grow more like Jesus. That's the destination of the journey. And any destination of a journey has markers along the way that helps us understand where we are towards that particular goal. And so that's why we call it the intentional journey. You can see the stages of faith that are listed uh, up there on the screen. Last Sunday, Pastor Meyer introduced us to that first step, that first stage of faith, the discovering stage. I call this the awakening stage. This is the time in our life when we realize that we were not the center of the universe, but there is something bigger, someone bigger than ourselves to whom we are accountable and to whom we can know. We might even come to realize that there is a personal God who wants to know us and that we can know ourselves. And so we were introduced last Sunday to the person of Zacchaeus, that little man with the collaborator's heart. That this tax collector turned turncoat uh, sold his soul to the Roman Empire and he extorted money from his fellow Jews and became a hated individual. But when he caught word that Jesus with his entourage was coming through Jericho, he wanted to be a part of that. And so he climbed a tree so that he could at least see Jesus. Now, why was Zacchaeus so interested in being a part of the crowd when Jesus came through town? I think it was for this reason. Zacchaeus had come to hate his own life. The money wasn't doing it for him anymore. He was isolated from his own people. He had long since lost any moral high ground. He was scum not only in the eyes of the people, but in his own eyes. But for Zacchaeus to move from that discovery stage, that searching out stage, to take a next step, required him to get out of the crowd and to get on to the journey. Now, there's a helpful progression there. I think that uh, John Ortberg 
gives to us. And I'm, I'm borrowing a number of thoughts from John Ortberg today. John Ortberg is the teaching pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in Northern California. He says there's a progression towards how we move towards becoming followers of Jesus. We might start out as strangers to Jesus. A stranger is one who is kind of distant from Jesus. We might have no more relationship to him than we might to George Washington as a historical figure. It doesn't really affect or change our life. But then we move from being strangers of Jesus to Jesus to being admirers of him. This is where Jesus starts to become a great figure in our life. We hold him in high regard. Uh, he's the moral standard bearer to which all ethics are compared. He's the one that is the religious genius as a teacher, and his teachings have stood the test of time. He's the one who's had the most loving heart that ever lived, and he spent time with those at the bottom of the barrel. He was the most sacrificial life that uh, was ever seen because he willingly gave himself in that excruciating pain on the cross, pegged to that cross. And while doing so, he said to those who put him there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At that point, we may become admirers of him. We think he's a great figure. But does admiring Jesus make you a follower of Jesus? And that's the direction that we are going. Become followers of him. When Zacchaeus positioned himself in the tree, where was he? He was right here. He was an admirer of Jesus. But everything changed on that day. Why? Because Jesus called him out. He stopped and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. And it says in Scripture that Zacchaeus came down and welcomed Jesus gladly. And at this point, Zacchaeus moved from being an admirer to becoming a follower of Jesus. Because he did acts of repentance as a result of that. Now, to become a follower of Jesus means you lose the anonymity of being a part of a crowd. We can come in to a crowd on Sunday morning and we can sit here and we can be sort of positively inclined or maybe a little bit negatively inclined. We can easily stay at the place of being admirers, simply spectators. We're here to maybe even kind of review how those did who led the service this morning. Did I like the music today? We might walk out saying... Uh, did the preacher say anything to me that really struck home and made any sense? We can be kind of in that reviewing stage, like writing a reviewing article for a newspaper. We reviewed the, the service that morning, but we're still here. We haven't crossed this line to becoming a follower. But when Zacchaeus lost his anonymity from that crowd, he became a follower. And he says to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times. I'm thinking to myself, that was quite an accounting task he had to go through. Zacchaeus was cut to the heart by the presence of this righteous man. And yet so powerful was the draw of Jesus that he was willing to give up his ill-gotten gain in order to follow him. And so he became a follower. But there's one more category, I think, today that gets us in the way of becoming followers of Jesus. And that is, today we teach a lot about being, I think, 
users of Jesus. We can preach Jesus as the one, if you follow Him, will give you all of these things. The carrot that we put out in front of you is health and wealth and position if you just follow Jesus. We can treat Jesus as if He's accompanying us like a motorcycle and a sidecar. We're still driving the motorcycle and Jesus is in the sidecar and boy, we're glad He's along for the ride, but we're still in control of this particular flow of things. There should be a solid line, a hard line, between being a stranger, admirer, or user of Jesus to become a follower because you have to cross a line to become a follower of Jesus. You don't become a follower of Jesus until you submit your life to Jesus. We don't get formed in Jesus until there is submission to Jesus. That's when we become a follower. We move towards Christ-likeness. When Michael Phelps won eight gold medals this last summer, there were a few young people who were watching those gold medals go around Michael Phelps' necks, and their hearts were pumping. They were, get it, they were excited. They felt the rush of energy in their bodies, and they were saying to themselves, I'm going to be the next Michael Phelps. I'm going to break those unbreakable records. They weren't simply admirers of Michael Phelps. They were going to become followers of Michael Phelps. Now, I'm an admirer of Michael Phelps. I haven't been in a swimming pool since last summer. But a few years from now, we're going to hear stories of those who stand on those platforms and those podiums with gold medals around their necks. And they're going to say, it all began for me when I saw Michael Phelps win those gold medals. They had become followers of him. The question is this morning, where are you on the journey? Stranger? Jesus is still kind of a distant figure out there. Admirer? I hold him in great regard. User? Sure glad he's along for the journey. He's kind of like my rabbit's foot. Or follower? I've submitted my life to him. You see, once we enter the nurturing stage, then we've become followers of Him. And then there's one word that really marks the nurturing stage. That second stage of faith. And it's the word foundation. This is where, where we lay the foundation of our faith. We put the, the floor under us. We find a place to stand that is rooted and strong. This is what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who has built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. The rock is a very common image for God throughout the Old Testament especially. And we read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 18, a psalm of David, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God in my, is, is my rock and whom I take refuge, my shield and my horn of salvation, my stronghold. The rock is that immovable place in which we stand. The Apostle Paul picks up on this same image and foundation and says, it's Jesus Christ who is the only foundation for us. 
And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say how important it is to build on that foundation, making sure that you build it out of materials that will last versus materials that will not last like wood, hay, or stubble. Because when the fire comes, it will show upon what we have built on that foundation. So this morning, I want to talk about what goes into this foundation. Of what is this foundation made of at this nurturing stage of faith? And I believe it's made of three things. Our core beliefs. Core practices. And a core group. So let's take a look at each one of those. Under core beliefs, I'm going to borrow a scheme from Michael Novak who helps us understand the difference between different kinds of convictions that we have that leads us to our our core beliefs. And he divides our beliefs into public beliefs, private beliefs, and our core beliefs. Now, Our public beliefs are those convictions we want others to think we believe, even if we really don't. For example, my wife puts on a dress, stands before me, and asks that dreaded question that all of us husbands get. Does this dress make me look fat? And the correct answer is, nothing you ever wear makes you look fat. And that answer has been approved by Lily Ogden. Public figures are notorious for public beliefs that make them sound good. The biblical illustration here is King Herod. After Jesus was born, some visitors from the east came, we called them wise men, and told Herod about one who was born king of the Jews. And what's Herod's response to this announcement? He tells the wise men, Go and make careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Now, did King Herod have any intent to worship this child? No, of course not. But it made for good public consumption that he wanted to get something for himself. In our business life, there may be beliefs that are politically correct in our our business community that we say we believe, but we really don't. So there are public beliefs. These are the things that we want others to believe that we believe. Then there are private beliefs. These are the beliefs that we actually think we believe until they're tested. For example, the Apostle Peter on the night before Jesus was crucified stated his undying allegiance to Jesus, didn't he? And Jesus said, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. And what was Peter's response to that awful thing that Jesus said? Even if all fall away, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Did Peter believe these private beliefs at that time? Absolutely. He thought he was ready to die until the moment of the test came. And those private beliefs then became very fickle at that moment. Perhaps we never even really truly know what we believe until they are tested. 
I can say in life and in death, my sure and certain confidence is in Jesus Christ. Nothing can move me from that foundation. Then I got sick. And I had to re-examine what I really believed in that moment. Public beliefs are those things that we want other people to believe that we have convictions about. Private beliefs are those that we think we believe. Core beliefs are those things that are actually determined by our behavior, the way that we behave, our daily actions. These are the mental maps that we have. I will always act consistent with my core beliefs or convictions. I will never violate those. For example, I believe in gravity, don't you? I will never violate my belief about gravity. Gravity is part of my mental map. If I'm standing on the top of a 100-story building, I'm not going to get close to the edge of that building because I know what gravity can do unless I want to take my life. But I will always act consistent with my core beliefs. So my public convictions are what I say I believe. My private convictions are what I think I believe. My core convictions are revealed by what I do. What I say I believe may be bogus. What I think I believe may be fickle. My core convictions will always be demonstrated by my actions. At this point, we come to the core of our core beliefs at the nurturing stage that are foundational to our faith. And I think they really center around two questions. The first question is, who is Jesus Christ? And the second question is, can I trust him with my life? Everything about the life of discipleship comes back to the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? If we believe that Jesus is actually God in human form, do you realize that a lot of questions have been answered? Is there a God? Yes, look to Jesus. What's God like? Yes, look to Jesus. Can I know this God? Yes, look to Jesus. That's why he said, come and and follow me. But the next question is, can I trust him with my life? Is Jesus worthy of my trust? Is Jesus good to the core and how can I know it? Not too long ago, I was in my own private prayer time. I was wrestling with this question. I'm a wrestler. (laughs) And God, can I trust you? Are you good? Doing my journaling. All of a sudden, this image broke into the midst of this time. And I'm not an image kind of guy. I don't get these kinds of things. But I was thunderstruck by the image that I saw. I saw this arm of God, this big hand like this. And then the earth spread out before me. And in this hand was the cross of Jesus Christ, almost in the form of a spike. And I saw this hand go boom on the earth like that. And then the question. What does it take for you to believe? What more can I do for you? Who is Jesus? Can he be trusted? These are the beliefs that are the core of the nurturing stage. And do we believe them? Jesus says the rains will come and beat against the house. And only then will we know if these private beliefs are fickle, or core to our lives. It takes the test to show that. 
The next element of the foundation is our core practices. These are those building blocks in our life that structure our daily life before God. Let me take us back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. We call these core practices spiritual disciplines in our life. Spiritual disciplines are really the training regimen of the Christian life. Any of us who have participated in sports know that practice is absolutely vital to performance in the game. Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player who's ever lived, was, a, was great certainly because of his natural talent, but in addition, he worked harder than anybody else. Thousands of foul shots to get that stroke down. When everybody else was done practicing, he stayed behind practice and he practiced his footwork so that he would have his footwork right in the game. He visualized those closing moments of a game so that when it came, he could hit that jump shot in the last two seconds. It didn't just happen by accident. He practiced it over and over again. Spiritual disciplines don't connect us to God. They simply put us in the presence of God so that when God shows up, we're there to hear from Him. On the front of your bulletin, you have a quote from Dallas Willard. Very short, pithy quote in my mind. Grace, he says, is opposed to earning. We can't earn a relationship with God. But it's not opposed to effort. If we want a relationship with God, it's going to take some effort on our part. This is what the spiritual disciplines are all about. I remember as if it were yesterday when I first started to incorporate some daily discipline in my life in order to meet God. It was my junior year in college as a student at UCLA. I'd been a follower of Christ for some time, but frankly, my biblical knowledge was rather abysmal at that point. I was tired of going to Bible studies and being sitting in a circle, a group of people, and the leader of the Bible study would say, uh, turn to second hesitations, please. And I'm starting to look for where that is. More seriously, there'd be times when people would say, well, turn to the book of Obadiah. And I'm sitting in that circle and I'm looking over at the person next to me saying, is that in the first half or the last half of the Bible? Any of us ever been there? I was tired of being there. So I decided I was going to take 20 minutes every morning before I went off to class and start reading through Scripture. Initially, just to overcome this embarrassment of lack of knowledge. And so I started reading through the letters of Paul, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. And when I got to Galatians, I stopped and I said, this is starting to sound familiar. I've read this somewhere before. And I leafed back to the book of Romans and sure, lo and behold, the same things that were written in the book of Romans were written in Galatians. Justification by faith there, justification by faith in Galatians. And I said to myself, Eureka! I'm starting to see some connections here. I'm starting to understand where things are in the Bible. Maybe for some of us, that's exactly where we are. We're just getting started on this journey. For some of us, we were just getting started on the journey of, of prayer. I would put Bible reading down here as maybe an initial discipline at the nurturing stage. 
And then learning to pray this time. One of the very simple little training wheels approaches to prayer, to borrow a phrase from Vicki Bear, uh, is a little formula that I oftentimes use called the Acts formula for prayer. Adoration for A, confession for C, thanksgiving for T, supplication for S. I used that for many years as an outline in my journal. A-C-T-S, and just prayed through it to provide a structure for me, to provide training wheels to learn how to pray. Well, we need to be nurtured in our prayer time. You can add to this Scripture memory, the discipline of worship, the discipline of service. There's all kinds of disciplines we can add. We have some suggestions in our Intentional Journey booklet. But the disciplines, you see begin to cut grooves into the hard soil of our lives and turns that soil over so the seed of God's Word can sink in and start to take root. That's the purpose of these core practices. So we have core beliefs that we want to address right here at the core level. That's where transformation takes place. Core practices. These are the disciplines of the faith. And then core group. We go on this journey with others. There are those who travel along with us on this intentional journey. We were made for relationship. As we've said over and over again here at Christ Church, God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the first and original loving community, and we reflect the image and likeness of God because we were made for relationship as well, as God is a being in relationship. I don't think I need to stress this too much here this morning. This is a value that we hold dear. That being in community, being in relationship is essential to the Christian walk. I'd simply say, if there are some of you here this morning who have sat in these pews for a long period of time, and you said, you know, I think I'm ready to get out of the pew, out of the crowd, and into a relationship, come. We invite you. Come. You're welcome. Go to the Welcome Center and let your desire be known, and we'll make sure you get connected to a community. Well, core beliefs, core practices, core group. Now, let me put these into the context of what we call our step rubric. Every stage has a next step that we can take. And so we're using this this image of, of step to describe what can happen in each stage. So there's the first step, which is what we call sight. I call this the home stage. As we are trying to evaluate and sense where we are, we all are at a home stage. One of these stages is our home stage, not that we don't have other characteristics, but this is the place where we are. And then there's the training. This is what we're calling core practices today. Then there's equipping. This is our core beliefs. This is where we have classes and resources available at each one of the stages. And then there's our partners in ministry. This is our core group that we are journeying with, that we are on this journey with us as we grow towards maturity in Christ. What's the next step that you are to take, depending upon where you are on that journey? That's why we've put together this booklet to give you a resource that you can consult so that you know what that next step is to be. Let me conclude with a, a final question this morning that I think comes directly out of our text of Scripture What if we don't lay a solid foundation at this nurturing stage? What will happen? Jesus gives us the answer. 
But if everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, a great, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus says, harsh things in life will come. Count on it. It's not a matter of if. It's simply a matter of when those harsh things will come. Have we built the solid foundation? Have we built a core belief upon which our life is rooted? Have we practiced those core practices that create a discipline, a structure to our soul so that it will hold during those difficult times? Do we have a core group with whom we are journeying that will hold us up during those times? That's what's so wonderful about being a part of a church community, especially for me at this particular time. Core group. That will hold us. E. Stanley Jones was a celebrated Methodist missionary in India in the first half of the 1900s. And as an aged man, he had a debilitating stroke that left him immobile and virtually speechless. At the time of his stroke, he was able to reflect on how he handled it. And these were his words. He says, Fortunately with me, surrender to Jesus was the primary thing. And when the outer strands were cut by the stroke, my life didn't shake. I need no outer props to hold up my faith, for my faith holds me. His foundation was secure. We begin to build this kind of faith at the nurturing stage. Let's pray together. Search us, O God, and know our hearts, and try us, and know our ways. And help us to see where we are, Lord, on this journey of faith before You. And what we need at this particular time to grow more deeply in our understanding of our beliefs, our practices, and our relationships with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.